1: tiktok and twitter at ringer nfl
2: this episode is brought to you by sonic let me tell you a little secret if you want to end the day on an even better note get yourself a sweet frozen treat from sonic especially since right now at sonic you can get half price shakes after 7 p.m when you order online or in the app that's creamy soft serve hand mixed with your favorite flavors for half the price in any size and flavor So save on your chocolate shake today, your strawberry shake tomorrow, and your cheesecake shake the next day. Grab Sonic half-price shakes after 7 p.m. now. Exclusions apply. Available for a limited time only at participating Sonic drive-ins.
1: This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Okay, Sean, top three movie snacks of all time, go.
2: Um, all right, let me think. Uh, popcorn? Obviously. Hmm. Ice cream? That's two. Oh, and uh, Reese's peanut butter cups,
1: of course. Peanut butter and chocolate is a pretty perfect combination. Some may even say the ultimate movie snack. You can't argue with that. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda
2: Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about David Fincher's The Killer Fincher's 12th feature film, now available on the Netflix streaming service. It's a delicious piece of filmmaking. We've invited a couple of guests on today to start the great Chris Ryan. Hello, Chris. What's up, guys?
0: Thank you so much. I, I feel like I kind of crashed this one. but
2: it's You a-
1: didn't crash, but I... You did raise your hand for this one. I did. It's often sort of like a, a spreadsheet, like desperate text message negotiation, and you on no, air were like, can I please come on a this dick podcast? In this character, but like, please.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Rattling my cup at you. Uh, later in this episode, we will have your doppelganger, Adam Naiman, yeah. who is one of the foremost David Fincher experts. My
0: brother at Sicko Corner truly, Industries. Yeah.
2: You guys will tag out. Like uh, like Marty Jannetty and Shawn Michaels yes. once did. Yes, I I I I have a a powerful thirty minutes to give you. Yes, Amanda.
1: Who are those people? <laughs> they are. They were
2: known as the Rockers in uh, WWF circa nineteen ninety one. Oh, interesting. Um, a
1: wrestling reference. I, yes. I thought that it just tagging brought to mind baseball. You know? Oh,
2: yeah, no, no. Oh, are, good point. Yeah,
1: but yeah. are we going to have to do... Are we, like, getting into wrestling season? Well, the Iron, Iron Claw, Claw yeah.
0: is, was well-received. I don't week. want to distract us, but I do think that the funniest possible outcome is if Knox becomes a huge wrestling <laughs> fan. <laughs> I, I,
2: again, there are so many things that I loved as a young boy that I am willing to share right. with Knox. Yeah. I, I promise you, I, I can. He's
1: already helping himself. Yes. You know, our firm, our foremost transportation and infrastructure enthusiast <laughs> yeah. who also turned on uh, Loki episode one all by himself this morning. So I live in hell. <laughs> Uh, as Just do we all. Wait till he yeah. <laughs>
0: discovers Jimmy Superfly snooker. Wait
2: till he discovers David Fincher is the killer. Yeah. Then, then the, the circle I'll, I'll will be, be complete. Proud.
1: That's as we have discussed. <laughs> that's where we come together.
2: Um, let's talk. Let's talk about this movie. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned that I was nervous to do this episode yeah. right before we started recording because I I do get a little nervous when there's a movie that I love so much mm-hmm. that I don't I don't want to screw it up. I don't want to get it wrong. I want to try to as honestly as I can communicate what I love about something. This one is obviously, I've been primed for the pump for this movie. Right. I've been awaiting it, honestly, since 2007 when the rumors of it first started. Um, of course, David Fincher, a huge filmmaker for all three of us. We drafted his films and works uh, a week and a half ago. It people did, they' very did, successful. Yeah, yeah, people did not enjoy that episode. <laughs> uh, nevertheless. Um, I, I
3: was among them. Yeah,
1: okay.
2: Fair enough. Um... You also saw the movie at the Venice Film Festival. I sure did. you got me excited about it. Um, It is, of course, a film about an assassin played by Michael Fassbender who bungles a hit and that then leads to a series of uh, violent, episodic moments throughout his life over a contained period of time. That's a very vague way of describing it. This will be a spoiler episode. We will talk through the specifics and mechanics, though I will say, not a film that is terribly reliant on its plot, it's really more a um it's an exercise yeah
1: but go see the movie it's on Netflix now mm-hmm. you that's one of the marvels of the 21st century is that you can just go open your Netflix account and watch this movie and then listen to this podcast and the the surprises or the the twists or people you may not expect or whatever are fun when they are contained in the movie so you know, I don't. I don't want to spoil it.
2: You told us when you after you came back from Italy yeah. that you you love the movie. Yeah. Um,
1: no, I texted you as I walked out so that my opinion would be on record <laughs> against all of the dummies who are like, mm, I don't know. Yeah, I, I. It was mixed out of Venice. It, it I would was say. mixed.
2: It has gotten increasingly positive, yeah. I think, as the Fincher maniacs have started to like surround the movie, which you know is wonderful news sure, for, yeah. for me, for you, for especially right.
0: for Chris, David Fincher's Secret
2: Service. <laughs> like, <laughs> We are here to protect this man. Chris, what do you think of the movie we saw together? Can you together? imagine
0: a filmmaker who gives less, less. of a shit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. David, I'm reporting for duty. I would take a bullet for you, sir. Uh, I I think this might be my favorite movie of the year. Yeah. Uh, when we watched it, we watched it in possibly the most ideal circumstances possible. Uh, Philly's game aside. I No, I'm sure you saw it in oh, the most yeah. magical place. I wasn't trying to say one was better than the other. I just, I meant,
1: is, you guys are excluding me, and I don't know whether it's like your inferiority complex that you didn't see it day one in Venice or. It's your inferiority <laughs> complex
2: that you were partying with me and Chris, laughing our heads true. off yeah. at this
0: movie. Yeah. pounding Amstel's and being like, that,
2: Boy, yes,
1: uh, I am. We did guys... it again.
2: Well, I mean, we only did that because you you beat us to the punch. Yeah. But, but, yeah. Did you
0: really have an Amstel? I, after the fact,
2: yes.
1: But is an Amstel light in your rotation? App? Sure. I mean, if it's what's available. It was available. It has to happen. At yeah. LMR, oh, at, at the reception. The yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's uh, just a real, my mom's circa 95 drink. Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going to unpack that. So I just meant that we had a very lovely... Uh, very sacred kind of cinematic experience. I I usually don't sit in the middle of the theater. We sat in the middle of the theater. I felt like we were just, fastbender was just towering over us. And I love being manipulated by filmmakers. I love having them play all my strings, decide how I'm going to feel when my pace, like when my heart is going to quicken. And this movie is just like, kind of like I would teach this in film school. It'd be like, here's how you make a movie from a very subjective perspective point of view and here is how you manipulate an audience with editing with music with everything it's just it's just amazing piece of work
2: yeah i don't know if it is the best movie of the year i'm not sure if there is an objective i said favorite but it is it is my favorite as well it is the most fun i had in a movie this year i think there are more towering works that had broader ambitions than this movie but it is the most complete piece of movie making that i've seen and i saw it a second time last night to prepare for this and I had a very different experience with it. The first time, I was kind of marveling and laughing and thinking about my appreciation for what Fincher does and what he's done in the past, and it is a movie that is very much him iterating on what he has done in the, in the past and iterating on movies like this about assassins, about lone men. Um, the second time, I think I understood it more as um, a pretty emotional movie, and I, I, I'm curious if you guys think I'm overreading that. Uh, because I feel I feel like kind of a summation of a lot of the stories that he likes to tell, and so the first time I was like, "This is a joke," he's making fun of himself and me. The second time I was like, "This is the thesis statement for all of his repressed feelings and why he works the way that he does."
1: I don't know whether overreach is the word I would use, especially since you know you've made yourself vulnerable. You've said you love this. You said you're nervous. Um, <laughs>
2: yeah. I also. Why would you attack me after I did that? Chris
1: is like. Hey, I was gonna be nice. I was just waiting. Um, <laughs> I didn't know if
0: there was like
2: people think I I sit down and I'm like ready to fight in every episode, and it's the exact opposite. I would love to just be like, let's be warm together in the cozy embrace in front of the fire of cinema. And and you are like you're cracking your knuckles and you're licking no, your chops.
1: No, I just sorry, I was doing a little podcast performance. <laughs> so that's what you're supposed to do. No, I also watched it again last night, and I hadn't seen it since Venice. And I I think I told you uh, when I texted you after I saw it the first time um, that I thought a lot of you, Sean Fennessy, during this movie. Uh, And I responded to the Fincher self-referential elements and, um, you know, the... I guess I think of you and Fincher in you know like a similar little box for better and for worse. Yeah. So I, I thought it was well. Dry little perverts and, working very hard
2: to make things. Yeah. just So yeah. and
1: and so <laughs> I uh yeah that 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 is true. Yeah, I, I was going to yeah. say control freaks. Yeah, you know, sure. and this is like the ultimate control freak movie about a control freak made like by a control freak. I don't think that there's emotion, but I and I think that that is kind of the electricity of it. Mm-hmm. But I am interested in your you're um you know like the you're picking up of okay. the oppression because i think that you're closer to the movie I think there's in a, a lot of ways. There's a
2: number of ways to read the movie. I'd like to throw the my readings of them at you guys and tell yeah. me what you think. Okay. Um the last one that i wrote down but the one that speaks to my perspective on this is that this is a movie about an unreliable narrator who is repressing a lot of emotion to quote complete a task but the task that he's completing is avenging a loved one. And in the process of this movie someone that he's very close to is hurt because he has failed at something. And when that person is hurt, he then goes out and tracks down every single person who is responsible for the person that he loves being hurt. Now, the Fast character, the film takes place as you said, Chris, it is completely subjective. And Fincher when we saw him speak about this said, it is incredibly difficult to make a movie in which everything that you see is either from the perspective of the character or at least in their sightline the or film in their feels world. like how
0: he feels. Yes. Yeah.
2: yeah. And that Rendering that is challenging. Most movies don't have that. There's no establishing shots in this movie. There's no cutaways to other characters talking a hundred miles away. Movies don't do this. They don't stay inside someone's head. And so I think the reason that they're doing that is because the character doesn't express himself. So you have to feel what he is seeing in order for the movie to work. But it is about a person who, just because he's not saying, I love you to the person who is hurt, everything he does is informed by how he feels. But the character continues to tell you forbid empathy. Empathy is weakness. You know, that weakness, empathy is vulnerability. All the mantras that he says to himself over and over again is a person saying like what's most important is getting the job done so that I can feel better about how I failed. Yeah. That's a that's the most creative director point of view story of all time because you're a person that's responsible for so many things and one wrong move and everything falls apart. Many people who work in creative fields and all professional fields feel this way. But not everybody feels like they have to hold it so tightly. This is
0: so fascinating, though, because both, A, you're a lapsed Catholic and you're a father. I did not feel that at all. I thought this movie was completely about the fallacy of control and how, like, he's such an unreliable narrator as he's giving you his, like... Because we should say that this film is pretty much wall-to-wall voiceover of this guy's internal monologue. And he is lying to himself yes. and us Yeah, the entire movie. Absolutely.
1: He's like reciting his version of a self-help book in, in real time and I, his principles. I, I
2: wrote down so many of the lines of dialogue right. watching the movie last night, and I was thinking to myself, you, you could actually just listen to the movie yeah. and yeah. enjoy it. Yes. Yeah. Um, even though it is not a classically great script, the way that, that Fastbender delivers Andrew Kevin Walker's dialogue is hilarious and kind of hypnotic.
1: Yes, and intentionally. And you, I, I was imagining uh, Fincher directing the voice takes of, and like, <laughs> I I I'm have to imagine he got to like 300 on some of them, you know, because you have more time and you don't need as many setups. Anyway, I sort of really agree with you and also don't agree with you at all. Mm-hmm. I think it's a movie about the failure rather than the loved one, if that makes any sense. Yeah, sure. And I, I again, and I don't mean this patronizingly, like, it. it is very affecting that you are attaching the loved one to it, and I feel like in many ways he's just trying to tell us that he loves us, and this is his you way think of doing this is about it. us, I do, yeah, I promise and you about it's all not. of us. <laughs> and and, and, and I say I thank you. About. I say thank you. You're trying to express your emotions, yeah. so that's no. wonderful. But, but to me,
2: it, it's it's about people who are professional that that have important jobs to do. Yeah, that have families that have like.
1: But like, does respectfully like that family is not really a character. Or, like, a a person. Yeah,
2: but again, I think it's because of the subjective experience. I I, I don't think that there's an attempt to, like, make you understand the Dominican woman that he has fallen in love with. Like, the movie doesn't care about that. The movie cares about what he does and how he works. But I do think that it is all rooted in, and you can see this a couple of different times in the movie. There's a sequence much later in the film where he confronts a character played by Tilda Swinton, where he almost breaks a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he almost says what he wants to say.
0: Well he sees another but he way never of, does. He sees yeah. another way of life, another yes. way of living. Someone who treats themselves uh, to all the pleasures of life, where he has this ascetic kind of, I have an iPod nano, I have my stretches and my mantras.
1: Yeah, but it's it's so funny that you guys interpret that scene that way. And it speaks to Fassbender's like amazing silent performance. He's—I mean—he does the voiceover, but he is all physicality and reactions in the movie. And he says, I think maybe three words to Tilda Swinton total. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess there is a little bit of longing. I read judgment in it in equal measure in what he's doing of like this person let her guard down, and I won't do that again. And mm-hmm. and this is you know. So I—I I guess we all put you know I I. Hate the feeling of failure more than anything in life. Um, so probably that's why that part of it is responding to me, or that I'm responding to that part of it.
2: I think I think both are true. I yeah. think I think one does not overwhelm the other. Um, there are there are a few other things that the movie feels about, and it's interesting that the movie I think is being some some pretty warmly received, but a lot of the criticism is sort of like this is slight, this is small, because to me thematically it's very deep and clear, and it's about a lot of things. One of the big things that it's about that I think is right in line with a lot of what Fincher has done in the past is this idea of kind of like the banality and ease of consumer culture um, Uh and the number of the, the McDonald's and Starbucks and WeWork and Amazon and all of these series of corporations that have made our lives significantly, quote unquote, easier, have provided greater access to things. And in turn have also provided greater access to people who kill for a living and people who destroy lives. And, uh, the fact that no one cares and that no one's thinking about what the consequences are yeah. of getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. David Fincher, of course, as one of the primary architects of the Netflix revolution in Hollywood, having made House of Cards with them and in a series of other films, including this one, also is a part of that.
1: Right. After that, the, the, being the foremost artist in terms of selling Nike. Yes and Gap, Gap, yes. sure, and many other yes. of your favorite brands a, a and corporations. A corporate horror
2: and high class artist living in harmony, mm-hmm. and you know, just his. Obviously, this is the guy who made Fight Club. He knows of which he speaks. The, fa- the there's like I've always felt there's a kind of like self loving, self hating thing going on with him, where he's like, I need you to know that I know that what I'm doing is gross, but also it's so fun and so great, isn't
0: it? Isn't it fascinating that this year has really been defined by these movies with? by filmmakers who have such towering personas. I mean, I suppose that's sort of the best place to be in if you're doing a podcast about movies, but Gerwig, Scorsese, Nolan, Fincher, Mm -hmm. uh, like, we can't have a conversation about these films without also talking about either how we feel about these filmmakers Mm -hmm. or what these filmmakers represent and how this film is a commentary on the other films that they have made, right? Yeah, It's it's kind of interesting. I'm sure that, that many other years feel that way, but maybe because there's been such a dearth of, you know, actors going out and selling their wares and like we, ha- we didn't get hit with like 10 Leonardo DiCaprio TV and podcast appearances before Killers of the Flower Moon. So instead we're like Marty, I'm thinking about Marty, I'm thinking about Marty, I'm thinking about Marty being old, I'm thinking about Marty being young, I'm thinking about what he wants to say about violence in America. And with Fincher, it's like this is such a crackerjack waterproof, airtight movie. And I'm just thinking about Fincher and all of Fincher's movies and whether or not this movie is. And he's insisting it is not a commentary on his past work or him or anything That it is essentially an exercise, which I, you can take David Fincher as seriously as you take Michael Fassbender in this movie, you know?
2: Yeah, I think even if that were true and he does not actually feel that way, it doesn't matter because it's an expression of himself. And so he's showing us who he is by making a movie like this. I think I mentioned this um, last time we talked about Fincher, but that was incredibly revealing when he spoke after the screening that we saw and said that. And Andrew Kevin Walker said that Fincher approached him with the idea for the movie and he walked him through the entire movie. Andrew Kevin Walker wrote the script and I'm sure is responsible for many of these incredibly funny lines in the inner monologue. This is a,
0: this is almost David Fincher in human form, well, in corporeal yeah, form. The, the the big thing coming out of that Q and A, which was fascinating, and it was him and his 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 sort of murderer's row of guys that he's been working with on and off for the last 10 years or whatever um, was every time they got asked a question they would be like that's David that was that was David's idea and it was just like you know auteur theory being what it is I mean these movies are not what they are without Kirk Baxter and and Eric Messerschmidt and Andrew Kevin Walker but like this is a guy who seems to be in complete control of the medium and it's all in his head and he actually knows how to get it.
2: Yeah, I I think it's also he hasn't made a movie quite like this, I guess, since Gone Girl. But even, I mean, you could maybe even going back further to Dragon Tattoo is maybe a little closer to this kind of a pure thriller. Um, And he is the best at it. I mean, he is is the chosen one at the American thriller in the last 30 years. This is what he does.
1: That is the thing beyond it being like a remarkable prism for David Fincher movies and whatever you want to feel about, you know, perfectionism and or uh, corporate, you know, capitalist consumerism. Uh, It's just like a a genre movie that rips, you know, it is just like really good. And he, he is so specific and so deliberate. And he is applying it once again to like increasingly elaborate jet setting set pieces that just move and they get weird and they get uh, vicious and he can do the visceral quality of the stuff as well as he can do like, you know, here's what I think about the price of like 10 grams of protein in- and <laughs> McDonald's, you know, which is incredible. That one's, that one's really, really good. Another way, another thing that made me think of you is when he's eating like the hard boiled egg from the gas station, yeah which I've seen you do.
2: Yeah. Uh, I, I do eat that way. Yeah. I do eat on the you go. You eat for fuel. I am trying to maximize the amount of time I have to accomplish my job. And I, I I wonder if David Fincher lives that way. Because he, of course, is an extremely successful man who I'm sure lives in a giant glass cube on top of a mountain in, in Beverly Hills. No, he doesn't. No? Where does he live?
1: He lives in uh, Los Feliz.
2: Oh, I, I mean, same difference. Is yeah, that like
1: Yeah, so it's Chris. <laughs>
2: <laughs> sure, but I imagine he lives inside of Griffith Park, yeah. like at the top of. Yeah, Griffith
1: yeah, Park. yeah, yeah. I don't know. He lives. I, yeah, yes.
2: But nevertheless,
0: like I, I wonder. So if Maybe he eats I shouldn't that way. wear my my Fincher is zaddy shirt to Gelson's because <laughs> i might bump into him. <laughs> um, should we should we go into spoiler territory
2: and we kind of walk through some of the episodes of the film? Yeah. Um. The film opens in Paris, where Fassbender's character, who we're introduced to via voiceover, is preparing a hit—a hit on a seemingly successful businessman—and it is a kind of rear window monkey. You know, it is like an attempt to recreate mm-hmm. the across the the street path vision of what is happening in rooms in another building, and clear homage to that film. In this sequence, we see how important his tools and weaponry are. How important his exercises are. We see him doing um, finger push-ups. Mm-hmm. You do those, Cr? I don't, but I have been
0: trying to get into a daily stretching routine. Okay, and,
2: and it's really good for you. Yeah, as you know, I have some links. I have one as well, and I have been doing it religiously every night for a yeah. decade. Yes, um,
1: that's not stretching.
0: It's more like Opus Day. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I do. I do do. Stre- yeah, stretching every night. Okay. If I don't, if I do not stretch at night, I will wake up and be unable to right, walk. Right, right, right,
1: right. I thought you were just talking about the like the push-ups and. The- I do that as
0: well. I will say not yeah. to do a digression, but that it's not great to learn stretches from Instagram. I found that yeah. Up interesting. <laughs> yeah.
2: When there's like a twenty-three. This guy's woman. like,
0: "Here's how to release your thoracic." Uh, yeah. I'm like, "Oh uh, uh, no, <laughs> that doesn't seem like I can yeah. do this like without some instruction." That's how you
2: tear your labrum. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he, you know, he plans and he plots and he he camps out in a wee work. Uh, to, to fire this hit. And the hit takes place while the successful businessman is about to engage with the dominatrix. Mm-hmm. And
0: again, it might, it might be his girlfriend. She just could very yeah. well be his girlfriend.
2: Um, but, but she is certainly dressed as a dominatrix. And we sure. see her through this, this window pane. And we see that he needs to get his blood pressure down below 60. His heart, heart rate yeah. down below 60. Um, we see that he has a very specific methodology for executing on his work. He fires and he he misses. He mm-hmm. fucks up. He kills the woman but not the target. And from there, the film is sort of shot out of a cannon. It's very methodical and quiet up until that moment. It's very much about just hearing who this person is, what a weird, cliche-riddled, like, control yeah, freak he is. but
1: also with all of the, the tricks of the trade mm-hmm. and the, I, I guess, not spy craft but, like, killer craft, mm-hmm. Um, which are hilarious and so specific. You know, he has like his little metal camping cup to not get DNA everywhere. It's so fastidious, um, and mundane, but you it has to be exactly right, which is just obviously just the the Fincher metaphor mm-hmm. is like is like right there for the taking. You also you skipped the work playlist.
2: Yeah, so of course, um, there is one artist and one artist only that uh the killer listens to, and that of course is the. The Smiths um, it's, is among the funniest things. It's so funny. History. As you pointed out, he listens on an iPad, iPod Nano. I believe it's called work playlist. Yes, it
1: is. Yeah. But there are others, including yoga playlist. Yes.
2: Which I, I wish we could have heard yeah. what that would sound like.
1: It, what if that was just the Smiths too?
2: <laughs> and again, this is an amazing, to me, this, this choice speaks to my point about what an emotional movie this is. Is there a more longing right. vocal artist in the 20th century than Morrissey? He's certainly in the conversation all of those songs that play in this movie from those Smiths records are so deeply felt and intense and laid bare yeah. in a movie that is the, about the opposite of that. That is about, the, about closing down and executing. They're also hilarious. Right.
1: There's, that's kind of, and, I'm with him. I took it as just an incredibly funny joke.
0: There's, there are songs that, so he has like an 11 song playlist that are and there's some that are juxtaposed. Like he is listening to Girlfriend in a Coma when he goes to a Home Depot to buy a trash bucket to put a dead body in. Yes, <laughs> that's good stuff. I mean, so
2: the first, the second Smith song we hear is during this attempted hit, and it's "How Soon Is Now," yes. which is maybe the most yeah. popular Smith song. And there's something amazing that is done in this sequence that I've never really seen before, which is that Ren Kleiss, the sound designer, has chosen to move the music into from diegetic to pure stereo soundtracking. As the perspective of the movie shifts. As we are looking inside the room, Mm -hmm. we hear the song in full. When we get back to Fastbender's character, we hear it through his headphones. And it cuts back and forth and back and forth. How Soon Is Now also as a song about killing someone, about preparing to kill someone. Each song title is literally punning on the scene. There's also
0: another layer to it, which is that when he looks through the sights of the gun, and he hits play and How Soon Is Now starts playing, I think I started levitating above my seat by about five or six feet. And I was like, I didn't know, but I was waiting my entire life to see someone get killed to How Soon Is Now. And he, Fincher, knows that I am a troglodyte and keeps taking away the serotonin hit of stupid movie making where it's like, let's just take a little bit of the sh- like the difficulty of this murder off by like playing a cool song while it's happening. And when you cut back and forth and you don't give me the stereo song, I'm like, I'm aware that my brain is reacting to wanting to have a cool song played while something horrifying is happening. And I feel like I have to take myself out of it and think about it. And that is fucking brilliant.
2: You nailed it. That is exactly what it is. It's like just as soon as we get to the crescendo on the Johnny Mar lick, he pulls it back into Fassbender's ear. Such a smart move. Never seen that before. And also it is it's it's. Prodding you and prodding your yeah. impulses to have an He's exciting like, you know, moment. You know when what you, you fucking want, you yeah. dirty little
0: fucker. <laughs> yeah. You want to listen to this song <laughs> while he shoots this guy.
2: It's really, really fun. And, you know, of course the hit goes awry, as I mentioned. And then there's this chase sequence. And this is when Chris started kind of like shaking like, in his chair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Because there's this really exciting, very quick kind of. Dispensing with all of his materials, right. packing everything up. He need I think he steals that motorcycle. No, uh, it's, a it's, oh, like a, it's a rental.
0: It's like a it's like a lime scooter kind of thing.
2: Um, oh,
1: so that's what the second lock is? Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: I couldn't quite figure that out because I, he does kind of steal and break into things. Do at you rent times scooters
1: regularly?
0: No, I have rented a lime I scooter. I was also once.
1: G- <laughs> where? Yeah. where?
0: Outside of my house, just to ride it up and down. Oh, I almost okay. got hit by a car okay, and I never yeah. did it again. You think okay. maybe it was Fincher
2: who was driving <laughs> past you
0: in Los <laughs> fields? <laughs> He was like, "That's a good idea for a sequence." <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, and we get this breakneck classic chase sequence where yeah. no one's actually chasing this character, but he feels that he is in pers- under pursuit, and he races across town so he can get to a kind of safe house where he can change and shave and go. By to the safe airport. house,
1: you mean a random bathroom, dirty in bathroom a, in a tire shop.
2: Yes. Um, whether did he stake that place out?
1: It, no, it seems like he brings everything with him. Yeah. But, uh, you know, who can know?
2: He's a really good traveler, like me, you know? All carry-ons. We're not checking bags. Yeah. Well, well this
0: film then becomes it became interesting to Amanda because it became about Delta Miles Club. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> he never sits first class. No. You know? He's always aisle and Economy Plus.
0: Yeah. There's that
2: great...
1: But
0: he does go to the lounges.
1: Yeah, sure, because they have showers. Yeah.
2: We have skipped over the moment where he described his look uh, which is that he is inspired by a German tourist, yeah, and so he wears a bucket hat and a kind of khaki jumpsuit, which is basically what right. David Fincher wore to the Q and A after. Yes, the he was oh, really? dressed very similarly to the okay. killer. Um, and I mean, so, I was
1: going to say some fashion inspo for you. Yeah, They're not the bucket uh, hat. Yeah.
2: A man needs a uniform. Yeah, I, I believe in that. But um, it's, just, it's
1: a lot of like performance fabrics.
2: Agreed, and I'm I'm. You're getting I'm, there. I'm leaning further kn- and further. Yeah no, yeah, no, I know. We're getting closer. But
1: they're kind of like in neutral colors. They won't show dirt. I.
2: D- so here's the thing. Michael Fassbender has an extraordinary physique. I mean, he is really one of the most well built humans on earth. It is remarkable. He is a machine, and you can get away with that kind of beige in your 40s <laughs> when you are that kind of a machine. Myself, not so much. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, he is kind of anonymous. Fassbender's extremely dry delivery of "No one wants to talk to a German tourist" was one of the funniest line deliveries in years. There are do- there are dozens of of jokes like that that are the flat affectation, but the the writing is so clever. Bobby,
1: have you ever gone to McDonald's, gotten an egg McMuffin, and discarded with the muffin? N- no. Okay. No.
2: It's coming no. for you, Bob. And- <laughs> I'm a McGriddle guy myself, so I want wow. all those carbs. Please oh. give me those. Oh, simple yeah. oh, if you're going to go
0: to McDonald's? Like,
2: yeah, you got to get to do the and, and yeah. a hash you know, like, Don't be a baby. but he's just he's just he's fueling
1: up.
0: This this the he's killer in is Paris. fueling up. Like he can get right. other stuff to eat. That's the funny thing is, but it? he doesn't want to baguette.
2: I mean, that's going to slow him down.
1: Many, a majority of French people are also in Paris and are just like, you know, it sounds great, McDonald's. Yeah. Sure. So
2: yeah, that is that. That's part of the point, I think. Yeah, which is just like, you know, what everybody wants is McDonald's. um so he escapes. He gets on a plane. He feels he's being pursued on the plane, uh, and so when he stops over, he s- spends the night in a hotel room rather than get on the connecting flight the next day to Santo Domingo, which is, I guess, where he lives.
1: Because and he clocks someone who he thinks may right? be
2: pursuing him, who have who have a particularly uh, interesting sockware. Yeah, there's a lot of focus on the sockware of his potential opponent. Nothing ever comes of that opponent. I loved this little detail, rewatching it the second time. When he gets into this hotel room at the airport, he orders some room service, gets his room service, and then once the um, attendant leaves, he takes a glass and puts it on the door handle and then puts the tray underneath the door handle. So if anybody jiggles the handle, the glass will smash and make a noise and wake him up because he is going to sleep in a chair for three and a half hours before getting on his next flight. This man is crazy. This is psychotic behavior. The
1: way you describe it. I know, him but is, you're just like, kind of like, now I'm gonna do this. this and it's goals. like this is just like a manual it, for you it, for life.
2: It, the, the ingenuity of this psycho is very admirable but to no me. No
1: one's chasing you, and
0: you're like, I think I might No put a one's glass. chasing this guy either.
2: That's the thing. <laughs> yeah. The
0: paranoia is
2: real. Lo and behold, though, this is another thing. His um his cautiousness is what leads to the woman that he loves being injured. Because if he had just taken the flight, he may have arrived at his home, which he eventually does in Santo Domingo, and finds that there has been a, a, a fight, there's been a, an altercation of some kind in his house, some, it's been broken into, the woman that he loves is not there, there's blood streaked on the mirrors and on the floor, and he's panicked and doesn't know what to do. And again, like, it's it, guilt. Like, he did it. Like, it's his fault. Everything that has transpired to this point is his problem, and he has to fix it. And so... He eventually finds his girlfriend in this hospital in Santo Domingo. Great question at the Q&A about this, about the way that the sound design is used, where, like, when you're in the hospital, you can tell that this is um, more of a developing it's, nation. It's run,
0: it's run on generators, the yes. hospital yes.
2: and the weather is very bad at this time, and you can see the power flickering out, and when the lights go out, and then the generators turn back on, and you can hear all of these. There are a lot of little details like that in the sound design and in the way that the film is shot that are really impressive. Um, after he sees... Uh, his his loved one who's I don't think gets a name does she get a name
1: no but he doesn't either so
2: that's a good point um, he really sets off on his mission and he's gonna track down all the people who are responsible for this he
1: gets many names I should say none of them are his real name
2: yes they are all names of 70s sitcom characters yeah. which is an incredible joke and you know of course is a Great read on how the fact that like nobody's paying attention to anything and yeah. like they're just assassins like, moving it, through the world using it, Sam alone as uh, their a alias. hilarious
0: joke that like now nobody cares if you're named Archie Bunker you know like yes. ten years ago fifteen years ago people were like hey Archie Bunker yes but now it's like some guy working at Avis counter is like I don't know who all the family right is. we have
2: a dead culture now we yeah. were talking about Private Benjamin <laughs> on the rewatchables the other day and, and I was like there not a single person under th- under thirty five knows what Private Benjamin is and and Bill was like that's not true and then we were like Craig do you know what that is and he was like <laughs> yeah no. um and this is Nancy. The same. Myers is
1: only Oscar nomination.
2: We did we did we mentioned we that. We mentioned that. Yeah. Um <laughs> Okay. I,
0: it's not it's not it's
2: not her fault.
1: <laughs> I was to say it's, I didn't care about
0: <laughs> Me and Sean <laughs> yeah, throw bodies in front of yeah, that. One. The attitude
1: <laughs> was not whether you mention it. My beef is with the Academy, yes, not with yes, you yes. on that particular very ad.
2: reasonable, very reasonable. Um so there are there are <laughs> One, two, three, four, four kills that come here. Yep. Or four kill missions. Should we power rank them? I I kind (laughs) of wanted to ask you, what was your
0: favorite? Uh, I think that the New Orleans sequence is my favorite, which is when he goes to visit Charles Parnell, who is a uh, legal professor and a lawyer, who was his mentor in law school, who recognized a kind of sociopathy in him and said, you know, what's much more lucrative than law is killing people. And so he they don't really get into any kind of like biographical detail but that is the implication mm-hmm. and so he is Charles Parnell uh, who people remember from Top Gun Maverick and you know Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning and is a great character actor and is really getting his getting his chance to show he's, his wheres wear- he's been plucked by it's, the auteurs yeah it's, it's awesome. interesting. it's yeah. so it's awesome. good uh, he uh, he gets an incredible scene of just oration and then he gets several nails shot into his lungs yep <laughs>
2: Uh, it's a very very violent sequence yeah. and uh, a revelation that this guy is not fucking around. That he will he will do damage to people that he knows yeah. and has known for a long time.
1: It, it also and Chris mentioned this already is preceded by the Michael Fassbender character doing like curbside pickup for his Home yeah, Depot he basically order.
0: Eleven's himself, yeah, into this place. which
1: is uh, which involves a recycling bin and uh, a nail gun
0: and and timing the. Automatic door closing of different like offices. And this stuff.
2: comes in the aftermath of um, our tour of his storage unit, which is full of guns and license plates and fake passports. Yeah. Um, yeah. This movie is fucking hilarious, so particularly funny. when he kills Charles Parnell and thinks that he's going to have six to seven minutes to interrogate him and he dies yeah. almost instantaneously. <laughs> yeah.
0: Like, this guy's kind of bad at his yeah. job
2: a little bit? Yes. And that's part of what is so funny about so it. So
0: there's a crucial thing that happens in the New Orleans sequence that I wanted to talk about a little bit. So Charles Parnell has a secretary uh, who seems like a lovely woman um, and not at all culpable for... Dolores. Yes, yes, anything that's happened in the killer's life. And she... I think, take some oxy to kind of Xanax. Xanax. Uh, I would would take both uh, in this situation. (laughs) She is zip-tied to a bathroom. She
1: zip-ties herself.
0: She zip-ties herself.
1: On his orders. And
0: she says the most heartbreaking thing in in any David Fincher movie, which is, I know like basically who you are and what you're going to do to me. Please don't disappear me. Like, please don't make me disappear. Like, I don't want my kids to. My not... children. My need... family need the life insurance. Yes. Is
2: what he says, um, or oh, she says,
0: and you know this... what he says immediately after she says that in his internal monologue: forbid empathy. And he follows through with that because he gets what he needs from this woman, which is the rest of the sort of players in this in this conspiracy against him. And there is this moment where they seem to be having a sp- relatively sincere connection. Fincher also more than any other character dwells on Dolores's terror and her mm-hmm. fear and her... She gets
2: the sole non-subjective moment in the movie yes. when she sits alone in the car and attempts to break free and, and starts screaming. at the top of her yes. lungs to try and... So interesting, and that choice.
0: No one's there. Even though a guy had been walking his dog a minute ago, like, no one walks by, nobody cares. He brings her into the house, gets what he needs. And at the top of the stairs... Snaps her neck and pushes her down the stairs so that it will look like she fell. Um, But the reason why I responded so much to this scene is the same thing for the how how soon is now moment. Where you're like, it seems like Dolores and him are really getting along. Maybe he's going to see the light and like give her a break. And maybe he'll just like muzzle her and put her somewhere where she'll be found in three days. And it's like, nope, that's not what happens. In his way, though, he does give her a break. I mean, a literal neck break. But also, he... But it's the same thing that you're like. I think that's the conversation that he, the director, is having with the audience about their expectations and about their sympathies and about their. It's just, it's just always keeping you on your toes. Yeah,
1: I mean, it just also is like what is. It's just, it's playing, to Chris has said, with what you what you the audience think of this person, whether how you're relating to him, whether he's a good guy, whether like, he kind of did the right thing, right by. Sure killing her in a way that her kids are gonna get life insurance but like how willing are you like how much does someone have to do to get any sort of credit versus like how much y- you know it's the
2: closest he gets to decency yeah and but and, it's
1: completely it's so completely indecent no
2: it's brutal I mean it's yeah. it's absolutely awful what he does but it's an amazing ramp up to the next sequence which is probably my favorite just because of the sheer audacity of the movie making that happens which is the brute oh, the, fight. Yeah. the fight sequence mm-hmm. where he encounter, He seeks out in Miami the, uh, the man who is responsible for beating up and, and, and hurting his, his girlfriend. And again, I thought you made a great point, which is like this is this jet setting idea of like each kill sequence is a different place. And we feel that we are in the place. And he goes from New Orleans, a place with a thousand restaurants and one menu, one of my favorite really lines good. in the movie. Really funny. Uh, to Florida where we can feel the humidity and the dampness and the discomfort and the kind of haze in the air as he tracks this man who is this just kind of gigantic kind of professional wrestler type figure, MMA fighter. Um, And he tracks him down and follows him and follows his path and then eventually breaks into his home to, to kill him. And when he does, the man kind of catches him unawares and they have this brutal fight sequence. And the fight sequence, which takes place almost entirely in the dark, is like one of the craziest things you'll see in a movie this year. Uh, the way that it's staged and shot, and the brutality and the visceral nature that you were talking about, Amanda, is ins- it's insane. Um, it certainly is uh, on par with anything you saw in John Wick 4, um, except it is like true one-to-one, hand-to-hand combat. There are definitely moments where Michael Fassbender just gets like uppercutted by a <laughs> <Yeah>. 300-pound man, <laughs> and he just that. like shakes it off. Yeah, which is <laughs> um, also
1: like part of the... Sicko nature of everybody on this project. This
0: has one of the funniest jokes in the movie, which is he's been thrown into a kitchen area and is grasping around for weapons and comes up with a cheese grater. And you're like, "Ooh, a cheese grater!" Is he going to grate this guy? And he just like looks at the cheese grater, is like, "Fuck!" And, like, throws <laughs> away. <laughs> in my second
2: screening, that got a big laugh. That was maybe yeah. the biggest laugh line. But I actually thought that that. <laughs> that actually helped him because he throws the cheese grater and it distracts the guy because when it makes a noise he looks in the other direction. Yes, it did, and yeah. then he attacks him. So it's like this is a crafty motherfucker here. Yeah, um, and he eventually outduels this 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 brute and and does eventually yeah. kill him.
1: My favorite part of this was, uh, and I'm I. I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but there's a there's a dog making quite a ruckus. I love it. And so there's a lot of, you know, there's like a specially designed like dog drugging treat, you know, (laughs) and he's like doing the calculations of how much a pit bull weighs, versus you know, and how many of. And he fucks that
0: up, too. Yeah, he does, which is just
1: very funny uh, and very relatable to anyone who's ever lived next to a loud dog.
0: Yeah. Did you was
2: was the expert, the Tilda Swinton, your favorite kill sequence?
1: I think so. Although I am also I really like New Orleans, mm-hmm. you know the the nice thing about this movie is it has something for everyone. Yeah the 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 fight sequence definitely I was just like oh and now you want to film your virtuoso fight sequence like I'm I'm happy for everybody else and my brain is just like uh huh uh huh mm-hmm. I wonder what the dog's doing. Um, but when
0: Tilda Swinton's doing a tasting menu with a whiskey flight, <laughs> yeah, and then she asked
1: for her own bottle, yeah, you know, um, and I, I I noted her boots, I noted everything. yeah it was great. So he shows up in Beacon. New York yeah. which is incredible. just like an incredible incredible detail um, and waits outside her home for her masseuse to leave and uh, he's identified Tilda Swinton as the second assassin and she drives to is it the waterfront the name of I the restaurant? So. Um, I Was that in Beacon? Like downtown Beacon?
0: I don't I was going to ask you if you've been to Beacon. I, there's a lot of like really nice I har- love Beacon. Yeah. on the Hudson restaurant. Yes, exactly.
1: Yeah. 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 Um. Where she is dining solo, mm-hmm. it seems like she's dining like in one of the tables in the bar section, which is just like the, really the true way to live. You know, she's a regular it's where you like to eat at Houston's. Yeah, yeah <laughs> if you can get one of those like side tables, it's a booth, but you don't have to deal yeah. with all of the. It's great. Would
0: you say that Tilda
2: Swinton's character is aspirational for you? The Q tip.
1: Um, no, though that's do you really have your funny. own
0: bottle of rosé at Houston's that you okay, have <laughs> well,
1: <that's>, that <laughs> supposes that the rosé would last more than two visits, yeah. you know, which is part of the thing. I, I don't yet. Houston's isn't really working on a one to no. one basis like that. And it, that, it's a, that's it's okay. it's a
0: community thing. Yeah, it's yeah. a
1: different experience. I would love to have my own bottle of of something somewhere at some point. No, I I don't think that she's aspirational, but I think I probably identify more with her character's a, approach to trying to enjoy life, sense of style. Well, just sense of uh it's a, it's a different form of delusion, mm-hmm. you know, cuz she gives a speech about you you tell yourself it's just for the money, but then you don't you know, once you have enough money, you don't give it up and So let me ask you yeah. this,
2: what is her job? because Charles Parnell's job he's the lawyer he is the sort of attaché broker on behalf of the killer. We'll get to the client as we get into the final sequence of the mm-hmm. film. Is she the go-between for high-end clients when at, when planning No, I think I think she also does
0: killing, but I think okay. she wouldn't have done what the MMA guy wound up doing when they were both sent to the Dominican so, Republic. So she was
2: so, just hired as the cleaner. Yes. Okay.
1: Yeah, that that was my okay. understanding. But so going back to New Orleans for a second and Charles, Charles Parnell because he says something when Fastbender shows up. And he's like, I never imagined that you would go home. What were you doing at home? So... This
2: is my point about the movie. No. The movie is about a person who has a lot of feelings <laughs> and is like, he broke all protocol. Like, he broke the plan. Like, you're not supposed to have a loved one in the Dominican Republic yeah, when it, you're a professional assassin. I,
1: we'll get to... I I have so much time for your feelings. But... No, I am like logistically. I'm. My question is logistical. Like, so were they sent there specifically for her?
2: They were sent there for
1: him. Right. But he
2: sh- is supposed to know better to not be there, so as not to be caught and so killed. So
1: Charles now was like, "I had to send you, them there." Yes. But, yes. You know, to for the clean blowback. Up. Yes. Right, but like, I don't know if I believe that.
2: Well, I think that the the blowback was the intention of making sure that the killer long term goes in the wind that the idea was, you have this money, you screwed up this job, like, it was you a high-stakes job, you're yeah. gone now. Yeah. And you never go back to where you live, you start anew because you have all of this loose cash. He doesn't do that and also they don't even, like, who Charles Parnell may not have even known he had a girlfriend. But he... he he right. planted roots, and you're not supposed to do
0: that when right. you're in this lifestyle. I have to, I have to exit, unfortunately, okay. but I do want to say one thing about the Tilda Swinton thing, which is that the more I thought about it, the more I thought he killed her because she has a more normalized life than he does. I, I, I think that motivated and that him. watching her eat and having this like indulgent kind of like, uh, you know, sensory experience with this food that he's just I eat an egg in a rental rented van. Right. This person gets to live in normal everyday society and do what i do but i'm like in the dominican republic and i have to have my back to the ocean because i don't trust anything in front of me and she's just got this like she's she's has a a partner and she gets to go to dinner every night and knows people and has friends and i think that's why he killed her she also killed her because he was like you have something in your person I know you're going to try and kill me too I think but he
1: killed her because no loose ends I, yeah but
0: he was going to kill her no matter what but he was motivated even more each so one of these kills yes. is like him being confronted with different parts of himself in some ways yeah and I thought that that was really interesting is that she has she is this like basically well-adjusted person she is what could have been for him yeah if he had allowed himself to not
2: live but also she's bad now. at her job she's flawed yeah, yeah. and, and she's not she as she's not vicious enough yeah and he's vicious enough to execute on it um Chris, I just want to point out, uh, did Arliss Howard raid your
0: wardrobe for his
2: <laughs> performance in this film? The
1: sub shirt is just uh, I did give impressed. a
0: lot of thought to what the killer's favorite Smiths record is. I think he's a hat full of hollow guy, even though the songs are taken from a majority of the albums. But I think he is like a louder than bombs, hat full of hollow type dude. Ye- compilation-y you know? Yeah,
2: I I I wonder if he's more of a greatest hits guy. Yeah, um, like not yeah. a Queen
0: is dead. Yeah, meet meet his murder person, yeah. and then Arlo's Howard. I think we decided favorite sub pop band is Mud Honey. Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. You, you agree with that? Sure. He might be into Tad. <laughs> you think he might be into Tad? I'm not sure. Um, Cr, thank you for
0: joining us. Um, I'm really sorry. I I could I could talk about the killer all day. Um,
2: Maybe
1: you you can again in a future episode wrapping up the, yeah. the films of the year. That's true. I don't want to make your list for you.
0: No, of course. I'm it's going to come up. Obviously, it's yeah, on of it. of course it is. Uh, bye, guys. Thank bye, you. Bye, Chris.
2: This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. Spring is such a refreshing time of year. Flowers are blooming and you're getting your house in order. But now is also a good time to take a second look at your wireless plan because you might be overpaying. Right now, Mint Mobile has unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash pick. That's mintmobile.com slash pick. upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Sonic. Let me tell you a little secret. If you want to end the day on an even better note, get yourself a sweet frozen treat from Sonic. Especially since right now at Sonic, you can get half-price shakes after 7 p.m. when you order online or in the app. That's creamy soft serve, hand-mixed with your favorite flavors for half the price in any size and flavor. So save on your chocolate shake today, your strawberry shake tomorrow, and your cheesecake shake the next day. Grab Sonic half-price shakes after 7 p.m. now. Exclusions apply. Available for a limited time only at participating Sonic drive-ins. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race,
0: a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.
2: Okay, we're picking back up with our mean pod guy. It's Adam Naiman. What is Adam the author of, Amanda?
1: Adam is the author of a book about David Fincher. The director at the center of this podcast and also this film, and it is it is available for purchase wherever you buy books.
3: Hi, Adam. <laughs> Thank you. That 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 felt so natural. <laughs> you. know that was that was that was great. Um, I didn't how, know he how, was going to
1: throw it. I volunteered. You guys should buy Adam's book. Buy all of his books. He has written many books about some of the yeah, great directors. But I volunteered th- to do it, and then I didn't know that Sean was going to do it immediately.
3: Now available. Now, you available. Buy books. now available. The book is the book's very mean, right? That's that's the theme. Mm-hmm. Just 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 so mean, you know, so 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 hostile and condescending. That's the that's the brand, right? So we've been talking.
2: Well, well I, I'm going to use that as a segue because we've been talking about this movie, which I think could be seen in one direction as a very mean movie, a very uh, a cold blooded, you know, hard bitten procedural thriller from the man who brought you Seven. Um, but I also think it's. Uh, one of the funniest and most deeply felt movies of 2023. Uh, what would what, you make of the killer?
3: Uh, I wrote about it for, uh, for your website for a dot com, And uh, I wrote about it pretty positively. I had to watch it twice. Uh, when you write a long book on a filmmaker, especially one who does not lack for, you know, reception commentary, like Fincher, like you kind of owe it to yourself to, to write on these movies. Well. And so in that book, you have the advantage of seeing all these films, even Mank, you know, five, six times. And for the killer, like what are you gonna write as your initial uh, and, and I thought Was that Mank slander?
2: What's going on here?
3: No, hey, I I'm I was more towards the positive end on Mank than the, <laughs> most of the people most of the people I know on so on social media who thought that a good way to review the movie was just to write the title as if it was just in, inherently funny. Um, you know, Mank is a great joke. But um I think that uh you know, the first time through the movie, I don't know what you guys have said about it yet, but it seemed kind of self-evident and self-contained. Like this was obviously a bit of directorial self-portraiture. There's a lot of references to his work. There's a lot of references to his mythical methodology. There's a sense uh, of a kind of self allegory there. Like uh, speaking of Mank, you know, what if you missed? Yeah. You know, what if you're a really talented guy and your financiers are like, "Hey, that didn't go so well." And so I kind of was so caught up the first time in this idea of reading it and figuring out what it was that I wouldn't say I forgot to enjoy it, but it was like very much on hold as a viewer. Like it was a very alert, active, I've got to figure out what my feeling on this movie is. Second time I went to see it again theatrically here in Toronto, uh, not as much at stake in terms of the plot or where it was going. And I found it. Funnier and a little less. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? A little less obvious the second time. It mm-hmm. opened up interpretively for me beyond just the the Fincherness uh, uh, of it all. I mean, I still have some ambivalence about it. I don't know, you know, uh, where I would draft it. Uh, you know, I, I didn't do your David Fincher draft. I don't know where I would draft it. But I certainly was interested to read about it, and I found it interesting to to talk about with colleagues because, you know. We're not exactly drowning in shows of talent by great American filmmakers these days. So something is at stake, I think, in talking about this movie.
2: I do you think that's true? Do you think that there is some because that that's a an aspect of this conversation is as you pointed out, you can just fire it up on Netflix right now. Yeah. So, like, what is at stake for David Fincher with The Killer? Like for me, it is very clearly one of my favorite films of the year. I had a, a kind of an inverted experience with Adam. The first time I watched it, I was like, this sicko is the funniest filmmaker around and right. i really enjoyed the movie <laughs> and then the second time i think i thought a little bit more um kind of critically and structurally about the movie but i saw it in an alamo draft house last night mm-hmm. i don't know how to i'm curious to hear how you saw it as well um and it was a half full theater and some of the people seemed to be really lapping it up and the other half seemed to be receiving it quietly and um
1: <laughs> are those the rules at an I, alamo draft house <laughs> I, yeah,
2: that's a good point um and there's no box office report on the movie, and I'm sure it will be number one on Netflix over the weekend, mm-hmm. but we don't even really know what that means. Uh, David Fincher hasn't really been in the circle of public financial reception for a long time now. He hasn't released a movie to the public since Gone Girl uh, in the traditional theatrical style. So I actually, I don't, what do you think is at stake with a movie like this?
1: It's a good question. I Saw it again at home, courtesy courtesy of the Netflix oh, Corporation. Thank that was you, nice of them. thank you to them. You know, I had to write the email being like, I saw it on a big screen for the first time. Mm. I promise. Um, no, but they were very nice about it, um, which is, I think, how a majority of people will see it. I, I don't know anyone outside of our circle of people who cover movies for a living who have seen it. Who
2: went to go see it? Yeah. yeah. Even
1: though it is a David Fincher movie, and I would say that I know many people in my life who are at least you know casual. Or you know, he has been at the center of pop culture or and was for I guess 15, 20 years. Yeah. And some of that is the nature of of movies and the nature of Netflix and also th- this strike. I mean, he has been out promoting this movie as, as much as he can as much as he's willing. As much as he's yeah. willing, comfortably. Yeah. yeah I'm I I meant as much as he constitutionally can, you yeah. know, which is like not much. Um,
2: Not a sufferer of fools, David Fincher.
1: Yeah, but I I don't know that there are that many stakes because I, we don't really think it's in the Oscar conversation, even though I think that's a mistake. But we talked about on the David Fincher podcast that the Academy is just absolutely uh, dead wrong when it comes to David Fincher and has been for almost his entire career. Um, so it just seems like a movie that can be released and people will watch it and enjoy it which in some ways is like in keeping with the fincherness of of the of his career and of yeah. this movie of just like I'm just like a person who's trying to like do things as well as possible and then on to the next but
2: they're products. on thing yeah, yeah he makes exactly. product and he made a product for Netflix and then they will serve up the product
1: yeah so maybe it's just all upside
2: what do you think adam i mean you spent so much time thinking about the the arc and of his filmography was what, what, anything at stake
3: here well i took a quote um, that he had years ago, I think he was doing a, a mutual interview with Mark Romanek, also a very good music video director and who became a feature filmmaker uh, where he talked about working Fincher for propaganda. You know, that was the music video startup company, the, the the commercial and music video house that ended up having a lot of pretty cool people on their roster in the end. Like I think in the beginning was people like Simon West and and Fincher, but eventually like Spike Jones and Michael Bay. And Fincher likened it to a jukebox. Right, he's like you put your quarter in one end and something comes out the other, and it was a really mercenary quote. Where it's like we have the talent, we don't care what we're making. And I think Fincher is very obviously more of more than a mercenary. He's an artist. But when you guys say that his work is is, is content and he makes products, I think that's true. And then always with like that little kernel of self awareness, right, where branding and product and that idea of content they figure thematically into so much of his work. I mean, like when you rewatch some of his movies in light of that, especially stuff like fight club, you know, it's very obvious that that's kind of his subject. So when you ask what's at stake in the killer, I think of lines from the movie, like when the Fassbender talking about all the people who are born and die every day. And it's like, I'll never make a dent in those metrics. Yeah. Yeah, you know? of course. yeah. Like if you, like, if you think about that as a sort of, uh, you know, quasi Fincherian or quasi confessional, Line it sort of suggests this mixture of cynicism and resignation about what it is to, to make something now and how hard it is to make sort of uh, an impact. I mean, I think that what's at you know, kind of what's at stake is what does it mean that some of our best filmmakers are working for streamers in the first place because they get the blank check and they get the opportunity to make uncompromised work at a moment where studios seem terrified and allergic of anything good. But then the movies become weirdly ephemeral and kind of lost. You know, we talk every year seemingly at the end of the year, especially since I started doing these year-end pods with you guys where, you know, The Irishman is in the conversation. That's one of the films of the year or The Ballad of Buster Scruggs or even something like Roma. And yet, these movies don't seem to belong to the real canon. Yeah, Not because they're bad, not putting them down. They don't seem to belong to the real canon. Even when some of the Netflix movies get put out on a really physical form of canonization like Criterion, there's this weird kind of invisible asterisk and I don't know how to account for it yet. I feel like we can still on some level feel a difference. Even if it's not a difference in the artistry or the movie itself, they kind of don't feel real.
2: I know You've hit on something that I think is true That is not necessarily a criticism, but a lot of movies that have been concretized in our mind in the last 30 years as part of that thing played on like TNT on a Tuesday afternoon. Or you might catch a snippet of on HBO as you're flicking around, or maybe you rented it from Blockbuster and you had a kind of, either you sought it out or it sought you out. Mm -hmm. And you had to take an action beyond clicking a button for it. And in this case, You're right, Roma is hallowed in the Criterion Collection and it is available in theory in perpetuity on Netflix. But it doesn't feel like it is participating in the same way. The Killer is interesting in the same way to me because Roma and The Irishman and Killers of the Flower Moon, and I'm sure there are many other examples of this that I'm not thinking of right off the bat, but those are all films from quote-unquote master filmmakers who are responding to their own work and life and experience, and they're using the outsized corporate power of a streaming service to do so. And they probably wouldn't be made if not for those services because of the nature of Hollywood, but Hollywood might not be in this perilous state if not for the streamers in the first place. So, like, there, there is this kind of snake-eating-its-tail aspect to this sort of thing. The killer I find particularly funny because it does feel like self-portraiture, but it also... I think if it were kind of like marketed and treated like a traditional Hollywood movie, and we might have talked about this last week, I definitely think people would go see a Hitman movie starring Michael Fassbender if they just treated it like a movie that you should go see in a movie theater. It might not be a $500 million movie like Gone Girl, but it's pretty commercial. Um, And there are artistic flourishes, of course, and I wouldn't say it has the most satisfying conclusion. It actually kind of ends in it. It has an anti-conclusion in some ways, but it is really well made, propulsive as you said, the pacing is great, fun, funny, very violent and kind of satisfying in that way. And we'll just never know. Like we'll just never know like we'll like I said we'll know it's on a chart and then it will just be in the giant cloud of interesting movies that Netflix has financed in the last 7 years. And that's it.
1: I think that's a little bit true, but it it will also be in the the Fincher canon, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that I, th- I guess we are losing that centralized y- canon that Adam spoke of, or these things that we all have like seen together and agreed on. But at the same time, we're getting venture making exactly mo- the movie that he wants to make, and he is already established. It's not like Netflix established his career, right? So you know, there are other ways to find it. I think you just where it fits in history is a little bit different. You know, you, Marriage Story is another Netflix example of... I, I think Bomback is a great filmmaker. Is he Has he yet reached Scorsese Heights? You know, not really, but Netflix has just been funding th- that continuing project. And I, I guess there are minuses to that in that it they don't have the opportunity to go as wide, but I don't know. But there are a lot of nerds like us with Netflix accounts who are like, oh, great, a new Fincher, a new Baumbach, a new...
2: Bomback is an interesting kind of counter example to me though because he's a person who I feel has been elevated significantly by his experience with Netflix. Like he is, he now has a film that was nominated for Best Picture and I'm, I'm fairly certain he did not have that before he started this long partnership. This has allowed him to make movies with Adam Sandler and this has allowed, you know what right. I mean? Like, I saw that his next film was announced. I think Sandler starring in his next film too, and it was like it was about it was like a relationship drama about adults. And I was like, so a Noah Baumbach movie? Like, what is? That? I don't even know what that's what that means. So he's kind of an interesting. He's somebody who used the system to elevate his status in some way, whereas Fincher and Scorsese and a handful of these other people are almost like facilitating and kind of brand managing their legacies by way of these companies, which is an interesting turn of events, I would say.
3: But I mean, like thinking specifically about Fincher, I mean, you know, one of the things that is true about him and the degree to which this is like myth making or image management or received wisdom is, is, is fascinating. But it's like, there's the chip on the shoulder and the primal scene of Alien 3, right? Where it's like the contradiction of you're drafted to the big leagues, you're given $60 million for a really valuable franchise and then you have producers calling you like you're a shoe salesman on the phone you know on these conference calls which he never got over that one of the producers of alien was like you sell shoes like shut up you know and it's like the chip on the shoulder is interesting when you're working for a studio, whether it's a major or a minor, or whether you're looking to put financing together from distributors. There's something about Fincher's movie movies. I'm not saying actual movies, because Mank and the Killer are actual movies, and Amanda put it very smartly, where she's like, it's part of the Fincher canon. They'll never become obscure, because he's a major auteur, and people write Mm -hmm. 70,000-word, hardcover, illustrated books about him. Available wherever you buy books! (laughs) But there's something about a movie like Seven, where... It's like a miracle that it ever got made, not because he had a blank check and total control, but because he had to find ways to completely micromanage and control that movie against all common sense. And Netflix is kind of the absence of common sense, right? Netflix is really just like, here is the complete budget of a movie. You know, go for it. And I don't think it makes the work lax or lazy or less impressive, but it contextualizes it differently. It's like spending the reward instead of building the brand in the first place. And that's why I think he's thematized and turned into a subject, that weird idea of you have total control and your financiers have total faith on you in you. And then this weird narrative of like, he just misses. Like, did you guys talk about this when you talked about the movie? We either? did, yeah. That's the funniest part of the plot, is that he just misses. He's not that good. That's, and there's yeah. all these little hints and disparities throughout the movie that what he's telling you and what the movie is showing us, there's at least a little daylight between those things. And for that, for Fincher in his 60s, to make that kind of part of the texture of the movie total control and still capable of missing, it's really fascinating.
2: So I almost want to know what he thinks his misses are, and I don't know if he would ever actually. Obviously, Alien Three is is a kind of a disaster in his from his perspective. But the the idea of the unreliable narrator is something we talked about, and there are other instances in the film. The Charles Parnell, you know, attempting to keep him alive for six to seven minutes based on his calculations, and then right. he instantaneously dies. There are a number of things he does where he just fucks up, and even though he's kind of drugging
1: in, the dog incorrectly, right?
2: He doesn't get the dog right. Like he he screws a lot of stuff up. Um, And the fact that art is not an exact science feels like a metaphor onto this movie as well. And so that's rich and really funny. I mean, he's always, like I said, he's always been very wry and knowing about his persona and the work that he does. Very similarly to Kills of the Flower Moon, I had the same feeling at the end of this movie, though, where I was like, this kind of could just be a last movie. You know, this could be, this would be a fitting conclusion to this story. I'm not asking for David Fincher to stop making movies. I hope he makes 15 more, but... It, it it has the feeling of like this is what i wanted to say and what i would like to do now is lay by the pool with my wife and and drink a cocktail and not listen to the smiths anymore <laughs> you know like i and i i love i love that for him you know i hope i hope he finds happiness and and can abandon so Adam, his control for
1: i i just want to let you in on a narrative surrounding this movie uh which is that it's uh, it's about David Fincher in a lot of ways, and it's also just, like, about Sean. Um, and Sean has really seen a lot of himself in it. And just everything that you say, <laughs> including, like, I'm good, and now I'm ready to sit by the, my wife with the pool and have some drinks, is just... <laughs> I, maybe David Fincher wants to do that as well. I'd like to think that David Fincher is, like, doing that all the time that he's not making them, you know, I don't he's like, so. I work car- hard. You think, you think so. he's like a, it's tortured no. perfectionist. No. Not
3: to, not to, not to take anything from away from our special guy, Sean. Yeah. But there is, there is an entire uh, generation of semi maladjusted uh, male cinephiles on Twitter who in the last uh, four months, four weeks mm-hmm. have published something to the effect of I'm listening to the Smiths while working. He's just like me. He's right. like me for you know? real, for real. Yeah, he's yeah. like he's no, he's he's, sure. he's yeah. He's he's like he's like me for real, for real. I mean, I don't know how much you guys talked about that, but it is funny that the movie came out framed by these two really funny news things, like one being the disillusion of WeWork, yes. right? yeah, right. That the we that WeWork is collapsing, but the other being that Morrissey can't get a label to release his album, <laughs> and and in and, and, and in an amazing piece of video, if you guys haven't seen it he actually talked about it and performed on like a local New York news morning show because he doesn't have a label to to book him places. I mean Morrissey has kind of been soft canceled, right? Yeah. And without like trying to get too into this like there's rumors that Fincher wants to make a movie about cancel culture like this is one of the projects that he's kind of considering doing. There's even a little bit of a snide provocation in soundtracking a movie entirely with Morrissey in 2000 and and in yeah, 23 course. you know like beyond just the fact that morrissey is what he is and what's inherent in the music like that's pretty funny considering how completely out of the loop and out of the mainstream and out of like being allowed to like like Morrissey, Th- things have gotten to this point. That feels comp- fascinating, entirely
2: and intentional, purposeful. Yeah, yeah, and I, very funny. And and the yeah. other thing I was saying about that in particular is, you know, what who who is a more longing and emotional artist than Morrissey during that period, and the way that he sang is so the the opposite, the emotional, you know, inversion yeah. of what the killer is trying to present.
1: Adam, can I ask you a question that we've been Please. a little divided on? Is this an an emotional movie?
3: You know what? I wrote in my piece that the stuff with Tilda Swinton is very interestingly evocative of Benjamin Button, like this lonely dinner in this big, hollow restaurant that feels like it's at the end of the world and there's this moment of connection. And I thought that in Benjamin Button, you know, there's really big feelings in that movie, almost kind of oceanic feelings Mm -hmm. that to me are... Competing with kind of Eric Rothi and screenplay Shtick. Yeah. I very mixed feelings about Benjamin Button. Mm, same. And here they're not and here they're not competing with like sentimental shtick. They're competing with just absolute cold-blooded right. kind of cynicism. And then here's where you gotta give it up for Tilda Swinton, which is she's a good enough actor that in these scenes in The Killer, the movie actually gets kind of an emotional pulse. I find when she orders the flights of with the flight of whiskeys, mm-hmm. and you know, asks about ice cream and stuff, I I felt myself kind of feeling something in total distinction to the fact that Fassbender's clearly not right, or he's kind of well, but he you know. So the
2: one thing we pointed out though is that that is the one time in the film when it seems like he might break and start saying what he really wants to say, and I think it's because right. of what you're describing, where she is presenting, and Chris Chris located yeah. this when we were talking about it that she maybe is living the life that he could have lived a a more normal life while still operating as a violent person
3: well sure because he has that line about the bedroom community and you know the fact mm. that he right, can get yeah. to via amtrak and he feels kind of mixed about it i mean it's a good i mean amanda's question is a is a good one because it also can kind of depend on the viewer i mean i think anytime an artist is talking about their work or themselves, there's obviously some emotion and some feeling in it. You know, and I found that the Smiths go a long way towards lubricating that, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. Because they are they're kind of like the subliminal voice of the movie. You know, not just the the misanthropy, but the passion that's sort of in there. But I can't say that I was like deeply, deeply moved. That's not exactly what I'm
2: saying. I'll I'll try to explicate. My feeling about it. One, obviously, this is all larded in Amanda being like, this movie is about you. And so then me (laughs) questing for something beneath the surface of just like, I like my shirts folded just so before I go on a trip. Uh, But what I like about the movie (laughs) is obviously there is very little expression of emotion, and that's by design. This This is a Melville movie. This is a Kurosawa samurai movie. This is all that stuff, right? This is the Walter Hill, the driver movie. He's riffing on all those things. That's obvious. That's an easy read on the movie you talked about the miss and the idea of the miss. And certainly for David Fincher, the director, a miss means a studio loses hundred million dollars and his reputation takes a hit. In the case of the killer, a hit, a miss means that his family is in jeopardy and that someone that he cares about is, is wounded, is more, maybe mortally wounded. And those are the highest stakes possible for a, 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 person in the world. That's the, that's the worst thing that can happen to you. And that's not a mistake that they organize the movie around that and that his revenge mission is motivated by that decision. And so even though Fassbender never gives you that, he never gives you like, I will get my vengeance for what you did because that's not that kind of movie. That would be the Tarantino version of this mm-hmm. movie, honestly. Yes. Yeah, That is how he expresses emotion. In In the Fincher version, of course, it's, it's a repressed emotion, but what's under the surface, the same way like, th- think of the shot um, in Seven when uh, Brad Pitt is aiming the gun at John Doe when they're out in the middle of the vast wasteland when he's just been told that he cut his wife's head off and he starts to cry and then he sinks back and he flips his head back and he opens his eyes and he re-cocks the gun and aims and then eventually kills him it's like all of these movies Gone Girl is the same way you know like everything that Amazing Amy is going through is like her coping with what she feels was done to her when she was a kid and exploited and he's trying to locate that without ever letting her break the facade like he does this over and over again in all of his movies so it, to me, it just feels like a continuation of a theme about people who don't say what they're feeling and either push all their feelings into their work or into the things that give them pleasure. Sometimes those two things are correlated. And so I feel like it is a very, it is not just a thematically coherent movie with his work. It's like a thesis in a lot of ways. Again, I, if I'm overreading reading it, I, I feel comfortable with people saying that to me, but, and I don't know if he even specifically feels this way, but I feel like I'm right in reading it that
3: way. Well, Well, conscious and unconscious with him are fascinating because, like, you look at a movie like Room 237, that movie could only be made about Stanley Kubrick because people assume everything has intention. Right. There's other filmmakers where part of their filmmaking myth is that there's a certain amount of improvisation or a certain amount of discovery. Like, people don't put Cassavetes under that same kind of microscope or Elaine May under that same kind of microscope. It's a different kind of filmmaking with Fincher, because everything is so controlled because he's the kind of filmmaker who will put a sign on a wall. Like in um, in the social network, there's like that half-second shot during one of the party montages. There's a poster on the wall that's like boobs versus brains or whatever, and yeah. you're like, you know, yeah. you know that that was fussed over <laughs> yeah. forever because he's a semiotician. That's He's an ad man. So that idea of subliminal meaning, that half-second shots can sort of be legible, right? You want to sort of go, it's all meaningful, but you know, some of it might be Unconscious. I think the reason he likes serial killers so much, I've joked about this in my book and in other articles, is because consciously or not, he's a recidivist. He repeats himself. Uh, He repeats uh, compositions. He repeats character types. That's why his movies about serial killers are good, because they get the psychology. So if there's emotion in the movie, whether it's conscious or not, but you know, I found Mank, which I don't make fun of, you know, I, I found Mank to be quite an emotional movie too, not just for the obvious, not just for the obvious reasons, but again having to do with your art and your craft and your voice within within an industry. So I don't think you're you're overreading it at all. But of course his stature obliges us to have something to say. And that is sometimes antithetical to the idea of a lean mean genre entertainment. Yeah. Because when we romanticize those things, we're kind of thinking of movies without obvious authors sometimes. We're like just like a like a EuropaCore five million dollar hitman movie from the early two thousands or something.
2: Yeah. I I'm we didn't really get into this when we last spoke about him last week, but I think that the dual entertainment is kind of his mode. His whole pursuit is to make a movie that could be just perceived as a conventionally entertaining hitman movie if that's what you want. Absolutely. And that he knows that that sells, that that's the good sneaker commercial. But he also knows that he loves Alfred Hitchcock. And what does Alfred Hitchcock do? He makes conventionally entertaining movies that have deep, confused emotional themes that is an artist trying to explore how he feels about the world, sexuality, violence, all these great big ideas about life. And so he's always pursuing that in some way. I think, obviously, there is a kind of coldness to the execution of all venture movies. So if you're like, this is a big emotional teddy bear of a guy, he's obviously not. right. But I think that he chooses projects now based on whether or not he can kind of get his feelings up about them. And I felt like Hunter and Mank, and this are three movies slash series about kind of like, what is it all for? And that I feel like he's kind of circling the idea of like, what did I really devote my life to? Yeah, I,
1: I guess it's funny because during our draft, you quoted a separate line from this movie, which is skepticism often gets confused for cynicism. And I guess my interpretation of this movie is that it's a lot more cynical or you know, or nihilist than than certainly yours mm-hmm. is Sean. And I think I view most of his work that way. And that is kind of what's electrifying that, to me. That used about to be it. what was
2: appealing to me about his work.
1: I've been thinking a lot about this, um, another quote from the Pigeon Tunnel, which is the Errol Morris John LeCrae documentary, and which I can't wait to talk to you about. But uh, John LeCrae says at some point, I mean, there's this recurring thing about his movies are all you're like trying to get into the lockbox and his characters. You're trying to get mm. to the, the heart of things, the secret of power. It's what fuels his books, his work, his right. life in a lot of ways. The be room beyond the room. The yeah. room beyond the room. And then when you get there, there's nothing in it. Yeah. And I have been thinking a lot about that as a thesis for this movie and the the idea of work and perfectionism and and like maybe even like these emotional connections a little bit which is perhaps me putting it on there but you put but, things in
2: a lockbox that's your thing sure that's how you treat but them. i
1: just you know i like i don't think that you're wrong that it's about the, i don't i think he's definitely exploring ideas and exploring even this idea of revenge and trying to make a wrong right or make a failure not a failure anymore mm-hmm. um or what it means to be a failure because as we've all noted he's like very bad at it Um, but I guess there to me, there's like a what's it all, you know, but like for what? There's like a Fincher shrug at Mm -hmm. the end of all of it, which he also does, you know, in interviews when he talks about like you, it maybe it's not that deep, or maybe, maybe I'm just gonna have it both ways.
2: But by far the funniest (laughs) moment I saw Adam, I I saw the film at uh, the Academy Museum and Fincher was interviewed afterwards, and um they opened it up to audience questions which i thought was a psychotic act <laughs> to let people in the audience ask him questions cuz he he just has su- such a disinterest in God,
1: answering him dumb him questions so i love him so much but there were actually
2: a couple of certainly cinephilic lonely film twitter bros but their questions were good. They were like very specific about process, which is he's, he's really excited to talk about And his, this
1: movie is about process. Yes,
2: and his team was there and they got to talk about, Rain Kleiss was there and Eric Schmidt and Kirk Baxter. And so they talked about how they made their decisions. But one guy near the end stood up and said, in this era of TikTok, how do you make iconic movies? And then kind of rambled a bit <laughs> and Fincher sighed exasperatedly and performatively. And he said, when I set up a shot, I don't think, dude, how can I make this more iconic? Like, that's not what anybody does. Like Obviously, in many ways, he designs everything he does, but he doesn't do it with the intention of... Honestly, I I do you think, Adam, this is a really good question for you, do you think when he's making work 20 years ago or today that he wants to be chronicled in a book like David Fincher, Mind Games?
3: No, and uh, I know that... I've had various responses from filmmakers to work and books that I've written about them, right? I won't name who said what. I've never heard anything from him. And if I had to guess, I don't think he'd probably like my book. Not because it's negative, although it's not that positive, but because there's a certain intuiting of intention and a certain level of interpretation. And since he controls everything, I'm sure uh, if you're wrong about his intention, he'd tell you. And if he doesn't agree with your interpretation, he wouldn't care. To specifically, so, so what I mean is, you know, what do I think? I mean, I think that this is the guy who when he was however old 24 figured out that a baby smoking a cigarette as a as a as a a reference to 2001 is incredibly powerful iconography Right. And putting it in a commercial that was sponsored by the American Cancer Society is sort of genius. But I don't think he cared if there's someone's going to say that in a book 20 years later. He serves his material. That's why the jukebox analysis analysis is so fascinating to me because here's a mercenary. And inside that mercenary, working in tandem with the mercenary skill set and mindset, is a great artist. Like I don't try to use superlatives and like Apex Mountain or Mount Rushmore. Like I don't like that stuff, but I will say, shot for shot. He's up there for me as someone who's written about movies for 20 years in terms of who is good at directing movies, right? If you're that good at directing movies, you're not sitting around thinking about iconic shots. You just have the eye and the ear and the sensibility that you could go frame by frame through the work, know it's their work, And know that it's in the service of storytelling. When he's good, I don't think the Fincher, I don't think Killer's top tier for him. But I will say that when he is good, I have never seen any contemporary filmmaker who can push your attention to what he wants you to see, how he wants you to see it, and how he wants you to put that information together visually and narratively as effortlessly as he does. Like, it's he's a genius, right? And when you can do that, I don't think you're sitting around worrying about TikTok. Or questions about tiktok or your own iconicity or anything like that but he also knows how to get big effects and there are some images in his movies where i'm pretty sure when he figured them out he was like yeah that's gonna work
2: definitely um is this top tier fincher
1: for you recency bias but it could be i mean i part of what i like about this movie is that it is immaculately made has supported us all arguing about it for an hour and a half and also is just a barn burner. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, I just really liked watching it. I've seen it twice. I enjoyed it both times. I would recommend it to people who only want to watch a genre movie about a hitman. I would recommend it to people who, like, want to think while mm-hmm. it. But, but it can go both ways. And that's really hard. And to Adam's point, it looks effortless, but it's not effortless, mm-hmm. you know? And you don't see the work behind it, which is... but But it's there. And... So I give him a lot of credit for that. It's also, you know, it's uh, globe trotting. So the action sequences are in Paris, uh, the Dominican Republic, uh, New Orleans. I'm forgetting what Florida, and uh,
2: good old New York City.
1: Well, Beacon. Let's be clear. No,
2: I the cl- the client, the the Artless Howard character. Oh, right, right. New of course.
1: York. No, I thought he was in Chicago.
2: Oh, is he in Chicago? Oh, Maybe. Yeah.
1: Chicago. Anyway, okay. listen, uh, like. All great cities and locations around the world. So it, it could be tough. checks a lot of your boxes. It checks a lot of my boxes, whereas does like Fight Club check a lot of my boxes? Mm-hmm. It it does not, though I understand historically why it's important, I guess.
2: Um here's something I wrote down. This movie would make a neat pairing with Fight Club, two very funny films about yeah. sociopaths whose inner monologues rationalize brutal violence as expressions of a personal mission.
3: I wrote in the piece that they're very close because of the complicitous narration. Yeah. Yeah, they're 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 connected. They're the two Fincher movies that are driven by first person narration. And a first person narration where the tone is you're with me. Yes. Yeah. Right? You're 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 with me. And in Fight Club, that facilitates this major twist about the nature of Reality. I find the nature of reality in The Killer is interesting, not because it goes into flights of magical realism or hallucination like Fight Club. It's sort of an objective movie, but underneath that objectivity, it's such a surreal view of existence. You know? I mean, in Fight Club, the Edward Norton character is like building the model home, but at least he has a home. I mean, The Killer is these completely transactional liminal spaces, hotel rooms, airports. He spends time in the car. When he goes into people's homes, he's like, breaking their necks and kicking them down the stairs or blowing them up with a Molotov cocktail. Like, no one lives anywhere in this movie. But the the interesting thing
2: about that movie is that
3: Fight Club is a movie that is
2: sort of about a person who's having kind of an extended psychotic episode and has dual personality. And the killer is not. I think there may be something wrong with Fassbender's character. But in theory, he is a functioning member of society. He murders people for money and is incredibly fastidious in his actions to the point of parody. But he's just a guy doing his job. You know, Fight Club is about the breakdown of society and the the male psyche. The Killer is about a guy who's like, shit, I fucked up at work. And that's that's amazing (laughs) to come like 20 years later and land there, you know?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of people have pointed out the gig economy thing and i love that even though he's you know obviously got a certain amount of control and the advantage in most situations he's always in these very servile disguises you know he's a delivery man he's a he's he's a driver you know that kind of 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 anonymity you know the one joke that didn't land i don't know if you guys talked about it it didn't land just because it was done in another movie that people probably forgotten even exists but the whole uh tv character aliases thing that was a that was a joke in the cable guy it was. That was that that, that, that was, was a, that was a that was a joke of the cable guy just to give credit where it's due. It's true. And, and I th- was it was
2: seemed... 50s TV characters in that movie and this was 70s and 80s TV characters in this movie.
3: Yeah, that was the one kind of pop culture joke where I get it. I mean, you get it from the beginning, but unlike the Smiths where I laughed every time, every time there was a Smiths cue. I was like guffawing. I didn't laugh at the TV character uh, names in this, but every time there was a logo in this movie, I laughed because mm-hmm. they were deployed so well. The Amazon Dropbox thing is so funny. The lockers, it's brilliant. The the Amazon lockers is 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 so funny when you sort of talk about you know uh, products on demand and also weirdly instructional. I hope a lot of buildings are reevaluating their yeah. security after the killer is. Uh, Have you acquired a fob copier? A fob copier?
1: No, not not yet. Okay.
2: How will you break into my home no, if, unless you get a fob copy?
1: That's true. Uh
2: yeah. Yeah, like the 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 recognition of kind of satirizing and also kind of acceptance of our corporate consumer culture is also a lo- part of a long daisy chain of Fincherian experience, you know? Like the god of of Nike and and Madonna telling us like, "Boy, maybe Maybe Amazon has gotten a little out of control here. You know, maybe there's too many Starbucks in America is just very rich.
3: <laughs> yeah. And even, and the, and I mean, if you want to talk about a funny, I'm sure you guys talked about it, but a funny visual joke about how everything eventually gets kind of commodified. I love Arliss Howard and the sub pop t-shirt. Oh, yeah. Brilliant. It's really good. That was also like a laugh out loud. Like yeah. I high-fived myself in the dark, kind of being like, yeah, Fincher, that's funny. It was really, really good.
2: There's an amazing echo, though, which is that there's a quote about the Green River killer at the beginning of the film. And he says, you know, he wasn't right. a very smart man. No, he couldn't spell cat if I spotted him the A and the T, which is just <laughs> magnificent shit. But then, of course, there was a band named Green River uh, that was not signed to Sub Pop. So, you know, it all comes back to grunge. It all comes back to, to the late 80s and early 90s yeah. in Seattle. That's really what it's all about, Amanda.
1: Great.
3: <laughs> Great.
1: <laughs> As uh, always, I'm thrilled to be podcasting with you. <laughs>
3: Uh, I can't. For people, for people who can't see the look of horror on Amanda's face, I'm, I'm looking at these guys. To Contempt, resume. really? This that was hilarious. that was that was freezeworthy, Truly, I never comment on this stuff. Imagine if that she was, was generous one time, just once. No. I thought I was
1: very kind about your feelings.
3: I completely disagree. <laughs> <laughs> You're incredibly rude. You have to forbid empathy. Empathy. Yeah. Empathy is weakness. Stick to the plan. Stick. Stick to right? the plan. Stick to the plan. Don't improvise. Anticipate.
2: You know that's what I have to yeah. do with you every mm-hmm. twice a week for years. Uh, Adam, any closing thoughts on the killer and David Fincher? Uh,
3: no, you know. Uh, thank you guys for having me on to to talk about it so so meanly and so high handedly for all my favorite <laughs> for all, for all my favorite listeners of the. I told you that I ran into someone the last time at TIFF who listened to the podcast. Like you're not mean. I was just in New York recently doing stuff at the NY. FF and a couple of people are like, oh, I, I hear you on the big picture. I'm like, yeah, am I mean? They're like, no, you seem very nice. I'm like, thank you. Yeah. You know, yeah. I appreciate that. You're a nice, you know? you're
1: just
2: like David Fincher. You're a nice guy, but with a wicked blade. You know, when you cut, you can really cut.
3: Wick, Wick, you know, Wick, Wick, but you know, st- standing outside the New York Film Festival premiere of Ferrari is where someone like me gets recognized nowhere else in the, <laughs> the, civil, in the civilized world I,
2: I'll be perfectly honest with you Alex Ross Perry made this exact same joke when he was on the show two weeks ago he was like you know where I get recognized is outside NYFF and they tell me I heard you on the big picture
3: oh well you know you Alex, Alex and I go way back uh, thank you guys for, for, for having me on your show I appreciate it
2: thanks Adam and you'll be back uh, early next month when we talk about the best movies of the year I will I'm allowed back please
3: come back
1: yeah you're on the schedule
3: oh man that's awesome I can't wait I have to see some movies I like (laughs) I gotta I gotta go I gotta go I gotta go I gotta go find some I gotta go see what I gotta go see what is TV allowed can we talk about the curse
2: uh perhaps
3: I think I will be on the
2: ringer podcast network yeah
3: yeah because that that's good anyway that is (laughs) all yeah thanks Adam that's good bye bye guys
2: Thanks so much to our producer, Bobby Wagner, for his work on this episode. Thank you, Bobby. What are we doing next week? Next week, we're talking about the Marvels. Joanna Robinson's coming on yeah. the podcast. We saw the Marvels.
1: We saw it. Have you
2: seen that the, the film's been getting some positive reviews? Really? Yeah. Have you seen that? From who? People have seen it.
1: Um, I haven't really been consuming any reviews of it, okay. to be quite honest. I'll text you some. Okay. I have um, my own homework to do for that. Okay. Which is I'm going to... Re- two book plugs in one podcast. Wow. I will be reading Joanna's book MCU which is available also available wherever you purchase books yeah Um, and then I guess I'll read something about the, the film itself I saw it that seems like enough I got thoughts
2: I got thoughts too we'll see you then
3: this episode is brought to you by State Farm